Let's pray, shall we? Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for providing rest in Jesus Christ. And Lord, you know how much we need it. Not just physical rest, but rest from our spiritual labors. If you made it plain to us, Lord, that we cannot reach a right relationship with you in our own strength, there's just no way possible. But because of Christ's sacrifice and his willingness, Lord, to pour out his life for us on the cross and to rise from the dead, we have something that we can trust in and believe in and place our faith in. And when we do that, Lord, you give us rest spiritually. I ask you to open our hearts and minds this morning, Lord, that we may rest in the truth, in the solid foundation of your word, and may it change us from the inside out to be more and more like our Savior and our Lord Jesus. That this is the purpose for which you give it. And we receive it, Lord, wholeheartedly. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Well, I had planned on starting a new series in a different direction this morning, and at the last minute, the Lord changed my direction radically, as he sometimes does. So what I'm about to speak to you on this morning is a little bit different than I had planned, it's, um, and it's by way of reminder. We're having communion today. And um, I think that's part and partial of why it, it, God led me in this direction. Um, so if some of this stuff sounds familiar to you, we could always use a reminder. As Peter says, I'm here to stir up your mind by way of reminder this morning. So, I want to begin with two of the... Uh, most fearful words that you will ever hear in your life that you probably ever heard growing up in your life. And uh, whether you're uh, in grade school or graduate school, pop quiz. Examination day. Let's see how sharp you really are. Four questions going to be very revealing this morning as to whether or not you can be qualified to be a professional or not. Okay? They're not that difficult, really. How do you put a giraffe into the refrigerator? Correct answer is open the refrigerator, put in the giraffe, and close the door. That question tests whether you tend to do simple things in an overly complicated way. Question number two. How do you put an elephant in the refrigerator? Correct answer is, you open the refrigerator, take out the giraffe, <laughs> put in the elephant and close the door. This tests your ability to think through the repercussions of your previous actions. Okay? Question number three. The Lion King is hosting an animal conference and all the animals attend except one. Which animal does not attend? 
The elephant, he's in the refrigerator. Come on now, you just put him there. This tests your memory. So, okay, even if you didn't answer the first three questions correctly, you still have one more shot, okay? One more chance to show your true abilities. Here it is. Question number four. There is a river that you must cross, but it is inhabited by crocodiles. How do you manage to get across the river? Here's the correct answer. You swim across. And you're thinking, why? Because all of the crocodiles are attending the animal conference that the Lion King's holding. This tests whether you learn quickly from your mistakes or not. According to Anderson Consulting Worldwide, 90%, okay, 90% of the professionals they tested got all these questions wrong. This is true. All of them wrong. But many preschoolers got several of them correct. <laughs> Anderson Consulting says this conclusively disproves the theory that most professionals have the brains of a four-year-old. Because four-year-olds got it right. Now, I, I use that silly example to start off with because like many of us, not many of us like exams, right? Tests or quizzes of any kind. And yet they have this way of uncanny, uncanny way of bringing out the reality of where we truly stand on things as opposed to where we think we are. There is a proverb in the business world that warns the man who takes no inventories finally becomes bankrupt. What is true for those entrenched in the quest for success in the business world is also true for those who have embarked on the path of spiritual life. It is both advisable and biblical that we who claim to be Christ followers take periodic spiritual inventories. Yes? The dangers of neglecting the formation of our spiritual life are too great to not. If we aren't doing regular self-checks, we may one day find ourselves on the perilous edge of spiritual bankruptcy. The Greek philosopher Pythagoras, often referred to as one of the greatest teachers of all time, demanded that every night his students examine themselves and evaluate their progress for that day. They were to ask themselves questions such as, did I succeed in my studies today? Could I have learned more? Could I have studied better? Is there something that I neglected? Let me ask you a question. How often do you, as a professing believer in Jesus Christ, engage in those kinds of spiritual inventories? How often? I mean, seriously. You ask questions of yourself like, how did I succeed in practicing my faith today? Could I have spread more salt, shined more light? Could I have concentrated more on God? less on myself. Did I pray? Have I acknowledged even one sentence of God's word today? Is there anything that I've neglected? How many of you do that at night when you go to sleep? Some do. Most are too shy to raise their hands. Or they don't. 
Self-examination is not something that most of us look forward to. In fact, I believe we often go out of our way to actually avoid it. Our reaction to the practice can be best summarized in a statement that my daughter used to repeat when she was four years old and she found herself in trying situations. This is not fun. It's not fun. Self-examination is never fun. It's a lot like remodeling your home, and you've heard me say this before. It takes a lot longer than you planned, costs a lot more than you figured, and it's a lot messier than you ever anticipated. That can apply to your examination of your spiritual life, and it definitely requires greater determination than you ever expected. No, examining your spiritual status isn't fun. In fact, it's disruptive for individuals and for the church as a whole, but... Evaluation and change are the constructive means by which we grow into mature followers of Christ. Is that right? Evaluation and change are the constructive means by which we grow into mature Christ followers. They are necessary elements in order to keep walking in vital union with Jesus. Taking stock spiritually is essentially mandatory if we are to present to the world an undistorted Jesus. You following me? Say that again. Taking stock spiritually is essential if we are to present to the world an undistorted Jesus. And even more compelling is the fact that it's commanded of us in Scripture. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to guess where? Corinthians. Great job. Second Corinthians. What chapter? 13. Yeah, see, you're reading your bulletins, aren't you? <laughs> Can't fool me. Second Corinthians 13.5. It's profoundly important that we surrender ourselves to the tough work that God desires to do in us. As we develop a deeper trust in him, we need to trust in him to weave all the events of our lives, good and bad, into a beautiful tapestry of faith. And when we do that, we begin to hunger for more of his handiwork in our lives. And we will experience an awakened desire to see Christ fully formed in us. And I wonder how many of us really place ourselves under the scrutiny of God's words, the intense scrutiny of it, on a regular basis. Do we examine our personal lives in light of what we have heard, read, and seen in the scriptures? Or do we just check the box off that we did our devotions today and basically walk away and um, you don't even remember what you read by 5 o'clock that night? Every time we hear the word of God, we must evaluate. So today, while you're hearing the word of God, you should be doing an evaluation, as I'm doing an evaluation. Doing a quick reality check. And when the cracks are exposed in our lives, we must decide to make the needed changes. We just can't hear the truth and switch it off like a bad movie. Not if we're Christ followers. We need to do what needs to be done. Is that right? 
James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 in the message says this, Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you're anything but letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea what they are, who they are, or what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye, and sticks with it, is no distracted scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in the action. That's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. And I like the way he put it. Because if you think about it, if a person consistently hears the truth of God's word, yet avoids, avoids the mirror of self-examination, they are in danger of some things. Real danger. The ultimate being spiritual bankruptcy. Far too many people, you know what they're doing? Far too many people are examining everybody else's faith and neglecting their own. Isn't that right? We have a tendency to constantly put the guy or the girl next to us under the eye of scrutiny instead of ourselves. I guarantee you, you're going to walk out of here today and one of the thoughts in your mind is probably going to be, oh, I wish so-and-so were here to hear that. (laughs) See, that's the nature of our humanity. But it's also a sign of immaturity spiritually. The immature Corinthian church did just that to the Apostle Paul. They questioned his faith and his authority, but he had an answer for them in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And I love the way J.B. Phillips puts it in his version, translates the verse this way. It really brings it home. He says, you should be looking at yourselves to make sure that you are really Christ's. It is yourselves that you should be testing, Paul says. You ought to know by this time that Christ Jesus is in you unless you're not real Christians at all. What a scathing rebuke by Paul. Friends, each one of us needs to be making sure that we really belong to Christ, that we really belong to him. And we do that by constantly evaluating where we are in relationship to him. We do a spiritual DTR, define the relationship, right? Peter echoes this concept of checking yourself in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Beginning in verse 5, if you hold your finger in 2 Corinthians 13, look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5, Peter writes, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. See, this is like a target that you're looking at. He starts on the outside and the successive rings go into the bullseye and the bullseye is love. But then he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. 
Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to what? Make certain. Make certain. Make your calling certain. To make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Okay? Even Peter talks about doing self-evaluation spiritually. This is an exhortation by Peter. Evaluate. Make certain. Are we on the right track or are we drifting away subtly, slowly, but surely? Did you know that when an aircraft flies from New York to Los Angeles, it's off course almost 95% of the time? But they're correcting all the time. The navigator is constantly making adjustments and corrections until the final moment when the plane lands exactly on target. The same thing must be done in our spiritual journey. Unless constant corrections and adjustments are made, we can easily begin to drift ever so slightly off course and end up somewhere in the end where we don't really want to be. Because, friends, spiritual drifting has deadly consequences. Spiritual drifting has deadly consequences. Right now, in this moment, where are you in your spiritual journey? Think about it. Where are you? Are you on course? Or is there a need for some slight course correction? By examining ourselves, we uncover the sincerity and the authenticity of our profession of faith. How do you verify salvation? Think about that for a minute. How do you verify salvation? In yourself or in someone else? Think about how you do it, really. Because we're all making judgment calls, right? You meet somebody on the street... You're trying to figure out in conversation whether they're a Christian or not. How do you verify salvation? By what a person says or by what a person does? The answer is both. Just because someone says they made a decision for Christ days ago, weeks ago, or even years ago, it doesn't necessarily make them a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Jesus said that a disciple will become like his master, didn't he? He will become like his master, not just talk like his master. What your life and my life is like right now What it is progressing toward in relation to that decision that we've made has a great deal to do with the sincerity and the genuineness of that decision. You following what I'm saying? That's why all of us need these periodic self-checks. Evaluating whether or not we are truly in the faith is not just a nice suggestion, by the way. It is a serious command. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Look at what it says. Paul says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? It's a serious command. 
There's no option here. The Scriptures command us that we continually test ourselves. That's what Paul says here. The, the tense of that word is a continual thing that we, we're supposed to adopt it as a habit of life. That we continually test ourselves and examine ourselves as a habitual practice of discipline. Paul uses two distinct words here in this verse. Both can be translated as examine or test. But the first word he uses originally meant to pierce. It's right there in verse 5, the word test. Test yourselves. It came to mean to test intentionally to discover good or evil, power or weakness. This is the kind of testing that Satan used on Jesus in the wilderness. It's the kind of testing the Pharisees used to try to entrap Christ. The intent of this kind of examination is to see whether the subject will crack under the test and be exposed as weak or in need. Essentially, this is a test of pressure. And so the first reason that Paul says we're to test ourselves is to expose any glaring weaknesses or spiritual fractures in our lives. This kind of scrutiny may sometimes expose a person as a non-believer. I know a young woman who claimed to be a Christ follower for many, many years. This is a fairly... Let's, let's, let's put it this way. This scenario has happened to me more than once with people. This particular young woman claimed to be a Christ follower for many, many years. Went to church, walked the aisle, said the words everyone thought she was a believer. Even her family were convinced. She even convinced herself that she was a believer. But it wasn't until some years ago that she admitted that Christianity, her Christianity wasn't real. Admitted that. Something she heard caused her to examine the genuineness of her salvation and it came up short and in a spirit of humility and repentance gave her life to Christ. Made it a point to share that experience with me and I have a great amount of respect for that confession of truth. Her life now visibly reflects that beautiful change, the fruit of the Spirit. Her story illustrates the result of not only the first aspect of testing and examining, to expose, but also the second aspect, why Paul uses the second word here, test yourselves, examine yourselves, he says. The second word Paul uses here also means to scrutinize and examine, but with a different intent. The intent of the repeated command is for a positive result. It means to examine for the purpose of approval. Don't misunderstand what Paul is getting at here. He's not, it's not just flaws that we're looking for when we test and examine ourselves. When we examine ourselves, we're also looking for something that puts a stamp of approval on our faith. Some kind of authentic affirmation, like a changed life. Because a changed heart will always lead to a changed life. You can bank on that one. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man or woman is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. A changed heart will always lead to a changed life. And let me ask you, have new things put the Lord's stamp of approval on your life? 
on your life. Any of you flown lately? Airport safety checks, scanners, all of those things. Imagine that spiritually as you walk through the door here. Church wouldn't be so well attended. <laughs> if you were put under the scanner this morning, would you set off the alarm? Would you be found lacking or would you be labeled as approved in Christ? That's a great label, by the way. Approved in Christ. See, we may think we're okay when we say the right words and follow the right rituals, but it's not what we, th we think that matters, is it? It's what the Lord says is true. 2 Corinthians 10, 18 said, Paul says, For not he who commends himself is approved, but who the Lord commends. Romans 16, 10. This is a great label. Paul's talking about one of his colleagues in the faith his greeting that he usually does at the end of his letters. In Romans 16, 10, he makes a statement, greet Apelles, the, uh, the approved in Christ. Wouldn't you love to have that label? What a great title to have. If Paul were writing to FBC today, would he be able to say, greet, and you fill in your name, the approved in Christ? Would he be able to say that about you? Paul says, test yourselves, examine yourselves. It's not a joke. It's not a mere topic for another sermon. It's a serious command. It's a serious command also that comes with a specific concern. A specific concern. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5 again. See what it says. Test yourselves. Why? To see if you are in the faith. That's the concern. To see if you're in the faith. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Paul really drives home the sarcasm here. He says, don't you realize that Christ lives in you? The word for recognize here is a word which means full knowledge, by the way. If you have the knowledge and the understanding that Christ himself lives in you, it ought to have an effect on the way we live, shouldn't it? If there's no effect, there's no change. Then, as Paul says, maybe Christ doesn't live in you at all. The greatest paradox of this century is that 94% of Americans say that they believe in God while at the same time, abortion, immorality, marital infidelity, homosexuality, idolatry, criminal violence, substance abuse, pornography, racial prejudice, and social injustice rolls on like a freewheeling truck out of control. Does anyone else see a problem here? 94%? Of Americans are Christians and they believe in God and we have all these problems. The problem in postmodern Christendom is that what was once considered deviant, it seems, is now considered variant. It's just another way to live. Something seriously wrong. Does the fact that Jesus Christ lives in you 
make any difference in your world at all or in your life at all? Does it make any difference in mine? If not, then maybe we need to examine whether or not he is really in us, the scripture says. Paul says it right here. Is he really in you? Will you pass or fail the test? See, that's the thing about pass-fail exams. How many of you like pass-fail exams in school? How many of you like pass-fail exams when they count for 100% of your grade? See, the thing about pass-fail exams is there's no wiggle room, right? No wiggle room. You're either in, you're either out, or, or you're out. It becomes clear then that self-examination is not just a serious command. It doesn't just look at the specific concern, but examining yourself to see if you're in the faith carries with it, according to this verse, a sobering, sobering consideration. Again, look at 13.5 in 2 Corinthians. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus lives in, is in you, unless indeed you, what? Fail the test. That's sobering. Unless indeed you fail the test. You see, I believe that when I speak on Sunday mornings today, I'm addressing at least four groups of people in the church. Four groups of people. Those who are investigating faith in Christ. Okay, group number one, spiritual seekers. Group number two, those who possess faith in Christ. Genuine Christ followers. Group number three, those who profess faith in Christ. Intellectually convinced, but spiritually uncommitted. Okay? And group number four, those who procrastinate about faith in Christ. I believe that I'm addressing those four groups of people every time we gather together on Sunday. And I once heard someone refer to these people in the last two groups... Okay, those who profess faith in Christ, intellectually convinced but spiritually uncommitted, and those who procrastinate about making a decision for faith in Christ, those two groups, heard them referred to as mugwumps. Yeah? These people sit on the fence of faith, but they're mugs on one side and they're wumps on the other. And they're not willing to commit either way. They think they can maintain a perpetual balance between unbelief and, and, and belief and come out okay. The scary thing is, is that if you're a mugwump, you are in the greatest of dangers. Worse danger than the guy in the street who has never heard the gospel. Why? Because if you've heard the truth and have not acted on it, you've, you, you know what the truth is. And you haven't acted on it. Can't claim ignorance. If you've ever been a mugwump, you know you can't fence sit forever. It gets extremely uncomfortable, doesn't it? Uncomfortable, and sooner or later the fence falls over. The book of Hebrews has some sobering, sobering warnings to people who are in that precarious place. They warn people to fully commit themselves to Christ while they still can, while the opportunity is available, because someday that opportunity will not be available. I believe the book of Hebrews has 
that intent. It's a call to those who are having doubts about the faith and it's a caution to those who are considering departing from the faith and it's a confirmation to those who are dedicated to the faith. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. If you want a brief outline of the book of Hebrews, that's what it is. Cradled within this book, the writer sounds five distinct warnings to those who may not have become fully convinced or confirmed in their faith, in their relationship with Christ. These are the ones who say they know that the gospel is true, but they aren't ready to commit themselves to it. The excuses are many, they're varied, and they're very, very contemporary. See if anything rings a bell with you. The price is too high. I don't want to change the way I live. So I'm not committing. I'm not committing. I don't want to be shunned by my family or my friends. So I think I'll wait. Some of you are on that wobbly fence today. You've been hearing the gospel for a while. And deep down you know that it's true. But you haven't made the commitment and you can't seem to get your wump off the fence. You figure that you have all the time in the world to decide, but here's the reality if this is you that I'm speaking to right now. If you're in that boat, you may find yourself on a sinking ship. Maybe you're in a different raft altogether. May truth be known, you did commit at one time. Maybe you committed yourself to another church, followed the teaching of another pastor, and you got burned badly. And there's this bitter taste in your mouth about Christianity because of it. And you're scarred and you're blistered and there is a very real danger that your wounds are becoming calloused instead of healed. You're all busted up inside and you may be ready to chuck this whole Christianity thing as a whole. That attitude can shipwreck your life. And you need to check yourself against the warnings of Hebrews. See, I once read about half an hour before the Titanic struck that murderous iceberg and sank. Five warnings were telegraphed. Five warnings were telegraphed. But someone was too busy to take notice. To take them seriously. And a half hour after the sixth warning, the vessel known as the ship that God himself could not sink went to its undersea grave along with 1,500 people. You see, as author Steve Farrar wrote in Nautical History, there are three inescapable consequences of being shipwrecked. And like you've often heard me say about sin, it's the same thing about spiritual shipwreck. They can take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you way more than you want to pay. Someone once said that hell is probably overrun with people who were never actively opposed to Christ actively, but who simply neglected the gospel, making a decision about it. How many people in your circle of acquaintances are simply neglecting the truth? You cannot ride the fence. You can't keep your feet in two worlds waiting to decide which way you're going to go. Now is the time for a decision. 
For some reason, most people think they have all the time in the world to decide whether to follow Christ or not. But today could be the last day of your life. You may never have another chance. And the longer you put off receiving the gospel, the greater the danger of your soul becoming callous to it. Verse 12 and 13 of Hebrews 3 says, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be deceived and by sin and hardened against God. That's, that's a good warning. Unbelief is the ultimate reason that people reject Christ. If you're in the book of Hebrews, that's what it says in Hebrews 9, uh, 3.19. That's the bottom line. They'd rather hold on to a false hope that if they work hard enough at their own way, they'll make it. Jesus Christ doesn't offer a salvation experience that causes stress. Let me say that again as I look at your stressed faces. <laughs> Jesus does not offer a salvation experience that causes stress. You know what he calls it? He calls it rest. He calls it rest. The writer of Hebrews calls it rest in chapter 4. Entering his rest. Eugene Peterson refers to it in the message as the unforced rhythms of grace. And I love that. I love that statement. It's found in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 in the message paraphrase. In my Bible it says rest. Let me read it to you out of the message. This is Jesus saying this, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Isn't that great? I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Does that sound like your practice of Christianity today? Freely, lightly, unforced rhythms of grace. We do a lot of forced checklists of grace, don't we? Unforced rhythms of grace. The only way to enter that rest is to believe. To trust in Jesus and the salvation he offers. There's an urgency here involved. Today is the day, Hebrews 4, 7 says. Again, he fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Understand the urgency and realize that not one of us can sidestep the scrutiny of God's word. We can't. Because the word divides. In that same chapter in Hebrews 4 and verse 11, 
It says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word divides us in half. And in verse 13, the scariest verse in the Bible, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. Does that make you nervous? Why do we act as though we are? There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Our deepest secrets are unveiled before him. Unveiled. But we try to veil things, don't we? We veil our faces. We veil the things we really feel. Someone once said that the wonderful thing that we like so much about children is that they haven't learned to manage their faces. You can tell what they're thinking, right? Whether the ice cream truck comes or they have to eat spinach or there's a monster under their bed, their faces will tell you what's in their hearts. Not us. I'm looking at your faces right now and it's hit or miss, man. <laughs> See, when we get older, we learn to manage our faces, John Ortberg says. He says, we teach them to conceal and guard. We train our faces to look confident when our hearts are scared, to look pious when our hearts are wild with temptation or guilt. We often admire people who have learned to manage their faces. But that's not who we're drawn to, is it? We're drawn to people with unveiled faces. Alan McGinnis writes that Pope John XXIII, one of the most beloved religious leaders of the 20th century, elicited warmth from people everywhere he went, in part because he completely lacked pretense. Quote, he never pretended to be more than he was, unquote. He struggled with weight all of his life. He was the son of a poor peasant family. One of his first acts after being elected pope was to visit a large jail in Rome. And as he was giving the prisoners his blessing, he remarked that the last time he'd been in jail was to visit his own cousin. He didn't keep that a secret. One time when the Pope was at a party, when a woman wearing a low-cut dress walked in, John commented afterward that one of the hard things about being Pope, this is what the Pope says, he says, one of the hard things about being Pope, usually if a woman like that walks into a room, everybody looks at her. But if I'm at the party and a woman like that walks in a room, everybody looks at me. That's right, isn't it? To live with an unveiled face means that I make a covenant that I will not try to pretend to be more than I really am. Because everything's open and laid bare before God. Right? He knows. This means I will give up trying to please everybody in my life. Pursue the courage to express what I truly value and enjoy and love, even if I think the person I'm talking to will disagree or disapprove. Acknowledge it openly when I get something wrong instead of giving it into the temptation to hide it or manage it or put a positive spin on it. In other words, don't rationalize your behavior. Confess it and forsake it like the Bible says. 
Because God knows about it anyway. You're not fooling anybody. Certainly not fooling God. You see, it's all laid open and bare before God. Our deepest secrets are unveiled before him. You can't fool God. In ancient times, the word that the writer of Hebrew used here for open was used specifically in reference to a criminal trial. Interesting, in those days, a sharp dagger would be strapped to the accused's neck with the point ready to penetrate just below the chin. And the person on trial, therefore, could not bow his head or look away. He had to face the court full, flat on, face to face. That's precisely the position each one of us occupies before an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God. No masks, no turning your head, no looking away. When we come under the examination of God's word, we come face to face with the truth about God and about ourselves, and there is no escape. The word of God is piercing. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So whatever your secret sin is on earth, it's open scandal in heaven where God is. Charlie Brown's cut-rate psychiatrist, Lucy, gave this helpful analysis one day. Discouraged again, Charlie Brown? You know, your trouble is, the whole trouble with you is that you're you. <laughs> well, what in the world can I do about it? Re replied Charlie. Lucy said, well, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the trouble. I don't want to simply point out the trouble this morning. I want to give you biblical advice. It's like I used to tell you, you know, a few years ago when I used to coach the soccer team at Livermore Falls High School, I used to tell them the best way to get past the opposition when you're moving toward a goal, toward the goal, is to employ a th threefold strategy. And this is what it is. First of all, evaluate your position. That's number one. Look around, you see where you are. Evaluate your position. Number two, employ a drastic change of direction. And then couple that with a radical change of pace. Those three things are good spiritual advice as well. That's exactly what God counsels us to do today. First, evaluate your spiritual position. Pray the prayer of Dorothy Sayers. Lord, teach us to take our hearts and look them in the face, however difficult that may be. Amen. And if you're in danger of heading for shipwreck, then you need to employ principle number two. Drastically change your direction. You know what that means? Repent. That's a fancy way of saying repent. Turn away from sin and run toward God. Move away from distrust and believe what God says. And then thirdly, radically change your pace because you and I don't have all the time in the world that we think we do. Two of the greatest lies of Satan today is that there is no heaven and there is no hell. But the greatest lie of Satan, and I've said it so many times before, is that there is no hurry. There is no hurry. 
And that's his most effective deception to date, to convince you and me that when it comes to making a decision about Christ, that there's no hurry. There is a hurry. There's an urgency. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't turn a deaf ear to the truth. I'm going to ask you right now, right this minute, before we come to this communion table to make a bold move if any of this is resonating with you this morning. Make a bold move. The boldest move of your life. And I'm inviting you to do it this morning to give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Would you bow your head as we get ready for this communion table? Lord Jesus, you willingly gave your life for us on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. That by your grace and through the faith that we place in Jesus, that we truly are forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. But that is not a means or a rationalization to live our lives the way we please unless it's the way that pleases you. And so, Father, this morning, we surrender ourselves to you in spirit and in truth, humbly, willingly. Cleanse us, make us clean. Create in us, Lord, a clean heart. And renew a steadfast spirit within us. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit with us. And as we come to this table, may we receive it gratefully and amazingly, knowing what it cost you for us to be here this morning and to partake of it. Lord, your word is truth. It convicts, it afflicts us when we're comfortable, but it also comforts us when we're afflicted. May we receive your joy today by the power of your spirit. For I pray it in Christ's holy and precious name, our Father. And those who agree said, Amen. Amen.